morning. Today we will uh, continue our study in Joshua. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Uh, meet me in Joshua chapter 1. Um, if you don't have your Bibles, you're more than welcome to use one of our new uh, Bibles in the right translation uh, in the pew racks in front of you. Um, our passage today can be found on page 167 if you'd like to uh, follow along. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I'm part of the team here at FAC. Uh, and as always, it's a joy to be able to be up here and share God's word uh, and spend time together in God's word. Um, I'll read verses 10 through 18. Uh, I'll pray and then we'll begin. Joshua 1 verse 10. Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, All you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Now, Father, as we pause for just a minute, uh, clear our hearts, clear our minds. I would ask, Lord, that whatever uh, could potentially get in the way of us learning from your word this morning, would you please remove that from our hearts, remove that from our minds. Let us throw that at your feet to be taken care of, Lord. Let this be a focused and a fixed time uh, as we study. Would you please, Father, speak to us and open our ears. In your holy name I pray. Amen. In uh, 2006, there was a movie that came out uh, with Antonio Banderas in it uh, called Take the Lead. Uh, it, it told the true story of a man by the name of Pierre Dulane, who was a ballroom dancer and instructor. Um, Dulane's objective in the movie was to introduce ballroom dancing and instruction to underprivileged students in the New York City public school system. He looked at dance as a way to instill certain values into these students like integrity and dignity and teamwork and respect. Um, while I don't rem remember the movie very well, there is one scene that has stuck with me all of these years. Uh, there's a portion, uh, there's a scene where there's a, a young lady, a student, who refuses 
to uh, dance with her dance partner. And when addressed about it by Dulane, the the young female uh, shows resistance to allow her dance partner to take the lead. Uh, she, She doesn't like the idea of letting this guy dictate every single one of her steps, every single move. Um, Dulane explains, though, that ballroom dancing is all about two bodies moving as one. And this is what he says. He says, the man proposes the step. It is the woman's choice to accept by following. You see, to follow takes as much strength as to lead. Duane makes the point that following is just as important as leading, and you have to understand your role in the matter. You see, if this woman chooses not to follow, the whole dance falls apart and it looks terrible. However, when she does choose to follow the lead, it creates something beautiful. It creates a gorgeous dance. This is just a small illustration that uh, represents several different contexts. In order for a single entity to function in a healthy manner, its individual parts, which make up such entity, must adhere to the principles of leadership and followership. This is true in business. This is true in clubs. This is true in marriage. This is true in the local church. This is also true for the Israelites. This is no different for them in the book of Joshua. In our journey so far through Joshua, we have seen that uh, Joshua has been established as the clear leader. However, we have not seen if he has any followers. To this point, we've only seen God communicating to Joshua, to, uh, and now it's Joshua's turn to relay the message to the people. This is what we have in our passage here is actually Joshua's first official act as leader. And we're left to wonder, how will this be received? Will he have any followers? How will the people respond? Will their loyalty to Moses transfer to Joshua or will their loyalty to Moses hinder Joshua's leadership? And so let's take a look. Verse 10, we see that Joshua uh, commanded the officers of the people. Who, who are these officers of the people? The, this role was actually established in Deuteronomy 1.15. This office was put into place, was created by Moses in order to set up a uh, governmental chain of command, so to speak. And these would have been royal officials that carried out secular duties. Uh, they were the secular counterparts to the royal priesthood in Israel. Uh, they very much would have served as representatives representatives of the people. These are the people who represent everybody else. And they were organized in such a way that Moses would be able to uh, quickly communicate with the people. Um, It's important to note that Joshua is brand new in this job. 
These officers would actually would have been appointed by Moses. And so their responsiveness is crucial. The success of the mission of the Israelites to cross over to the Jordan, over the Jordan, depends on their response to Joshua's command that we find in verse 11. What does he command them? He tells them, hey, you guys need to go throughout the camp and you need to tell the people to prepare provisions. The word provisions here is actually food uh, because in three days time, we are going to cross over to, to the Jordan and take the land that God has given us. See, these are words of encouragement from Joshua. These are words of faith from Joshua because he is, he is um, essentially repeating what God has said to him. And he has great faith that God is going to come through, right? He is transmitting God's order to his people. And he's telling them, we will take possession. We will take the land that God has given us. This is his first official order. And then all of a sudden... In verse 12, it takes a very strange turn. You would actually expect to see what happened next with these officers of the people, but Joshua's attention changes. He, he changes from addressing the officers of the people and he begins to address, um, two and a half tribes, the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of, of Manasseh. Now, for those of you who may be unfamiliar with the Old Testament, um, Israel was made up of 12 different tribes. And these tribes represented and in fact were descendants of the 12 sons of Jacob, who were Abraham, who was Abraham's grandson. And, and so while Israel is um, one nation, one people, it is made up of 12 different parts, 12 different tribes. Uh, and so in order to understand the significance of what Joshua is saying, you would actually need to go to Numbers 32. We don't have the time to read the whole chapter, but the chapter tells the story of how these two and a half tribes went to Moses, saw that the land that they were in currently was, was good for livestock. They said, we have livestock. We would like to settle here instead of, instead of crossing over into the Jordan. This is what they're asking of Moses. They say, Moses, instead of going into the land that lie to the west of the Jordan River, can we just inherit this land that is to the east of the Jordan River? In Numbers 32, Moses actually responds to this in anger. He says, who do you, who do you think you are? You guys are just going to camp out here while your brothers go across the Jordan and fight in war in, in battles? You, you think you're just going to sit tight right here while the rest of Israel crosses over? No, you can't. You can't take this land. In fact, Moses likens them to the 10 spies, right, that we spoke about a couple of weeks ago. You know, Moses sent 12 spies into the land. 10 of them came back and discouraged all of Israel from going over into the land because they were too scared. And Moses says, you're nothing, you're nothing more than those 10 spies. The last time I had a group of people that came to me and asked me not to go into the land, it cost us greatly. So no, 
you bunch of sinners. He calls them a brood of sinful men. You can't go over to the land, or you have to go over the land. You can't stay behind, because if you do, you're going to discourage everybody else. You see, history has a way of repeating itself, and I'm not going to let this happen again. I'm going to learn from my mistakes. So taken aback from this, the tribes respond to Moses, and they essentially strike up a deal with him. They say, I'll tell tell you what, Moses, if you let us inherit this land, when it's time to go over to the Jordan, our men will take up arms and they will fight on behalf of Israel. We will go over as one and we will fight for the other tribes. And Moses actually agrees to this deal. He says, if you promise to go over the Jordan with us when the time has come, I will let you inherit the land. And so in verses 12 through 15 in our passage, Joshua is merely reminding these tribes about the promise they made. He's saying, hey, remember remember that one time that, that you and Moses struck a deal? Remember that one time that Moses told you guys that you could have this land as long as you came over? Well, guess what? The time is now. It's time to put your money where your mouth is, right? It's, it's time to go. You've inherited this land of the East, but I just need to remind you what the law of Moses said. This is rather significant and tells us a lot about how strong Joshua's leadership is because it's showing that he's listening to God by following the law of Moses, Last week, we took the whole morning to look at how crucial it was. God commanded Joshua to do according to all the law of Moses said, to to not stray from it to the left or to the right. And then here in his first official act, Joshua is literally quoting Moses in verses 13 through 15. He is letting the law of Moses serve as his guide immediately from day one. Joshua obeys the law of Moses. And this is hard because he is in a very precarious position here in regards to the two and a half tribes uh, that have settled in the east. They've already received their land by Moses's authority. And so where do they stand with Joshua? It's not very clear right now at this point if Joshua has any real authority over them. So what Joshua is doing in reminding them about what they said to Moses, what they promised to Moses, what Moses said to them, is he's defining the relationship between himself and these people. He's essentially throwing it out there saying, do do I have authority over you like Moses did? It would have been easy for Joshua to neglect or forget or conveniently ignore this reality for fear of backlash. It would have been easy just to ignore the big elephant in the room and hope that nobody notices. It would have been easy for Joshua to kind of just brush this under the rug in hopes that the problem fixes itself. However, Joshua knows that by neglecting these two and a half tribes, by holding them accountable, he would in turn be neglecting God's very own command to him in Joshua 1 verse 7. And so 
in a very bold and courageous manner, he addresses it. Not knowing how they're going to respond, Joshua is really putting himself out there. And this is a big deal. He's brand new to the job. This is day one, and he's already stirring up potential controversy. This scenario is far too familiar for many, many church leaders. You see, for Joshua, this is not an easy thing to do because sometimes God's word isn't what we would say is palatable. It's not an easy pill to swallow. There have been times in my own life where I have reminded people of God's word and I've been blasted for it because it doesn't fit their desires. It doesn't fit their agenda or their lifestyle. And so part of my encouragement to you this morning is to be gracious to your leaders Be gracious to your church leaders as they lead and as they instruct you because of the spot that they've put in. This is what Hebrews 13 is getting at. In verse 17, this is what it says. It uh, will come up on the screen. Uh, The writer of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. There is a sense of mutual um, responsibility here. The, The leaders need to lead well because they are going to have to give an account. They are going to have to stand before God and give an account for how they led their people for how they led the sheep and their flock. And so as followers, as followers, we have to obey and submit because this will give them much joy. This will give them so much encouragement as the leader has a responsibility and owes it to his flock to lead well. The follower has a responsibility to follow well and it's for the mutual benefit of everyone. As you submit and as you obey, you have the ability to encourage your leaders. You will bring them joy. The word encourage literally means to put heart into. You have the ability single-handedly to put the wind in their sails to keep them going. You can either be life-giving or life-draining. Don't be the email address that comes through that the pastor sees or the elder sees and they immediately start to groan. Don't be the phone number that when they see that, it's one of those, ah, here we go again. Don't be one of those followers. Instead, obey and submit because it brings much joy. Warren Wearsby, who's a pastor, a former senior pastor out of Moody Church, in his commentary on Joshua recounts this. He says, often I've prayed with and for godly Christian leaders who were criticized, persecuted, and attacked simply because like Joshua, they had a divine commission to lead a ministry into new fields of conquest, but the people would not follow. 
More than one pastor has been offered as a sacrificial lamb because he dared to suggest that the church make some changes. There are churches out there that eat their pastors. Let us not be one of them. Joshua, in putting himself out there, disregards his uh, comfort for the sake of unity. He steps out of his comfort zone and offers himself up in order to address these tribes. He embraces the awkward situation because he knows that the unity of Israel is far too important, that there is way too much at stake for there to be division in the ranks. You see, he knows that the expedition at hand right now is an all-Israel operation. They are to put the community in front of the individual. They are to put the interests of the body before the interests of their own. And Joshua tells these tribes that you will not experience true rest until all of Israel has rest. See, all of Israel will bear its burdens. All of Israel will suffer its losses. All of Israel will pay the price. But the beauty of this is, is if you are with me during the the hardships and you are with me in the suffering, guess what? All of Israel shares in its victories. As one person suffers, all suffer. But as one is victorious, all are victorious. And just as we can share in each other's sufferings, we get the joy and the wonder of sharing in each other's success, sharing in each other's victory. And so let me ask you, is this your view of First Alliance Church? Is this your understanding of the local church? I fear that in our culture, we have adopted a sense of individualism in corporate worship that is not healthy. Now, according to to Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, he says that uh, we are separate parts, but we make up one body. We're all on on, on the same team. The same is true with FAC. We are a local church body made up of many parts. And if you consider yourself as part of this body, as part of First Alliance Church, you have a decision to make that is not much different than these two and a half tribes that uh, Joshua is addressing, a decision that they had to make. You can either contribute to the unity of FAC or to the disunity of FAC in your actions, in your words, in your thoughts, you are either going to be an agent of unity or an agent of division. And so examine yourself, examine your heart. If you are actively contributing to the division of FAC, you either need to stop and repent or you need to leave. This is the reality because the unity of FAC 
is far more important than anything that we could possibly bicker about. I'm not saying that you can't have preferences. I want you to have preferences. I want you to be different because we are many parts. If we agreed on everything, that would get very, very boring. I'm not saying not to make suggestions. All I'm saying is hold those preferences and hold those suggestions very loosely. Be okay to, uh, to disagree. Be okay if we disagree. It's okay to disagree, but we need to be amicable enough to move onward, to be on mission, to make Jesus known. You see, we should have such an affection for each other that we are willing to put our differences aside. What I'm asking you is to not let trivial things get in the way of our mission to make Jesus known. And so you need to be able to sit here with a clear conscience and say, while I am not going to agree with everything, I will still follow the leader that God has put in place for the sake of unity in the body. Joshua desires unity and he is dealing with these tribes that um, have reason not to follow his lead. These tribes have already received their inheritance. They've already conquered it. They've already built on it. They've already lived in it. There is no logical reason for them to cross the river. They virtually have no skin in the game. If anybody had an out, it was these guys. And Joshua is asking them to leave their homes, leave their families, leave their rest, leave their comfort, and to put their lives on the line for the sake of Israel as a whole. The only reason that these tribes should go into the land is to demonstrate that they are loyal followers. And so how do they respond? What do they say? It's in verses 16 through 18. You can take a look at it again. They say, all that you commanded us, we will do. Wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. And anybody, anybody who goes against what you say shall be put to death. They have just demonstrated complete commitment to Joshua. It is one thing for God to set Joshua as the leader and another for the people to actually follow him. These verses right here are extremely significant because it shows successful transfer of leadership during a time of transition. It shows that the baton being passed from Moses to Joshua is now complete. Here at FAC, in our time of transition, we will know it is a success, not based on the leader and who it is who leads, but based on the followers and who are willing to follow. This is significant. And there's three things that their response demonstrate that I would like to look at and point out. And it's in the three verses that we'll walk through at the end of our passage here. First, their response demonstrates what true followership looks like. 
In verse 16, they commit to doing whatever Joshua commands uh, and to go wherever he sends them. And they do this without question, without dispute, without explanation. Joshua didn't have to explain or defend himself. He just gave the orders and he could take it to the bank that he had their word and that it would be carried out. Do you know how much time we waste as church leaders having to defend our leadership choices? Do you know how much time, how many conversations we have had with people having to give an account for why we would like to move in a certain direction? It's too much time. If we are to be a church on mission, we must spend less time on insignificant and trivial matters so that we can focus on the mission at hand to make Jesus known. You see, these tribes have no personal interest in the land west of the Jordan. They've got nothing to gain and everything to lose, but in an attempt to stay unified, they follow. True followership says, while I may not agree with everything the leader uh, says or does, I will still follow. I will do what they want me to do and go where they tell me to go. Why? Because the effectiveness of the overall community is dependent on my followership. It is dependent on how well I follow. This requires a great deal of humility for them to be able to do this, to be able to submit. But true followership is always rooted in humility. And these tribes have this humility because they see the bigger picture. This is their second demonstration. Their response demonstrates that they see something greater. In verse 17, it says that they, uh, that we will obey uh, you like we obeyed Moses and may God be with you as he was with Moses. See, this response demonstrates their understanding of what we would call governance authority. This is what Paul is writing about in uh, Romans 13, verse 1. He he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. What governance authority says is, is I will obey the authorities that, that have been put in my life because God, who is the ultimate authority, has allowed them to, to be there. Right, that is governance authority. And if we apply um, Romans 13, 1 to Joshua, we see that Joshua is put in place, uh, a place of authority because God himself has put him there. This is what we discovered in the first two weeks of our time in this book. And so for the people to respond in this manner show that they had a very clear understanding of God's appointment of Joshua. They had a a clear understanding that that Joshua was called to this position for such a time. They they knew that to disobey Joshua would be to disobey God. See, this isn't just a matter of how I choose to follow or not follow. This is a matter of obedience and disobedience to God. The very foundation of our followership isn't in the authorities in our life, uh, but but God. 
You see, God is the subject of our followership. I don't follow somebody because uh, they earned it or because they have some kind of credentials. I don't follow somebody uh, because of how he looks or because of how he talks or because of how he makes me feel. I don't follow because we share the same preferences. I don't even follow because I, I like the guy. These are not reasons we we follow. I'm very encouraged this morning because you all, in a sense, are demonstrating this idea of following somebody with no credibility and that you're listening to a Browns fan right now. (laughs) You're probably thinking this idiot up here has no idea what he's talking about. (laughs) We'll talk later. (laughs) Yet here we are. No, the the basis for my followership, the reason I follow is because it's by God's authority that I have been put under the authority of others, period. Governance authority should be reason enough to follow the leaders in our life. If you can't find any good reason to follow anybody in your life, use this one. If you go to work and you think your boss is a knucklehead, use this reason. If you come to church and you think they never listen to me and they don't know what they're doing and all of this is going wrong, use this to follow. God has put people in your life who have authority over you. God has put people in my life who have authority over me and we follow them because God has them there for a specific purpose, whether we realize it or not. And because he is the ultimate authority, we say, Lord, we will obey you. Verse 17 speaks to the condition of the Israelites heart. It shows that their heart is in tune with God's heart. And this brings us to our final implication uh, of their response in verse 18. We're told that whoever, uh, anyone who rebels shall be put to death. Their response demonstrates the severity of disunity. Now, I don't think um, in our context that we can implement the death penalty uh, for rebellion in the church. I'm sure that there's some of us that wish we could. um, But in Israel's context, this is completely appropriate considering their past experiences. You look through the first five books of the Bible and you will see that the Israelites are nothing but a bunch of rebels. A lot of people, when they read the Old Testament, they struggle to see God's love through the passages. The day that I found out that God uh, in the Old Testament is so loving is the day I realized how much Israel rebelled and how much God over and over and over again demonstrated his love by giving them another chance. When they were in Egypt, God had delivered them out of slavery, out of Egypt. And one of the first things they do is complain about the bitter water and the shortages of food. While Moses was on Mount Sinai communing with God, trying to lead his people, they grew bored and, and, and uh, impatient and they forged and worshiped a golden calf. They were so quick to kick God to the curb. 
Even later on, they question Moses' leadership and they attempt to overthrow him so that they can return to Egypt and be slaves. They are a bunch of rebels. And every act of rebellion created disunity. And every time they were divided, it created major life-changing setbacks in their journey that brought about death. And so when they say that acts of rebellion deserve uh, to be punished by death, they are demonstrating the severity of disunity. They show the seriousness of rebellion. They understand that there is a lot at stake. And the main thing that can hold them back is division. They saw unity as a matter of life and death that relied on following their leader. Our ministries would look so much different today. If we, um, if we treated unity with the same respect, if we saw how serious our divisions really are, the unity of the body and its very effectiveness as God's agents in a lost world are at stake. Every second that we waste here at FAC talking about what divides us is a second that could have been used to embrace what unites us. What we need to stand for as a body of believers and what we need to spend our time on is not what divides us, but what unites us. In order to be on mission, we have to agree on the main thing. What can we agree on? According to Paul in Galatians, our unifying bond, the one thing that sets us apart from the world and holds us together as a body of believers is Christ and him crucified. The gospel. This is what our mission needs to be. And this is what our focus should be on. This is what Paul writes in Galatians 3. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying is, hey, we live in a world where we can be divided on everything. Slave and master, male and female, Jew or Greek. It's the same today. It doesn't take long to find out that we are different. And there are several things that we can focus our time uh, on that, that explain our divisions. But what Paul is saying is that while there's everything in the world that can divide us, there is one thing that can unify us, and that is Jesus Christ. And this is where our focus as a mission church needs to be because Jesus Christ is our unity. And we ought not waste time on silly little things that distract us. You see, to be on mission for Jesus, to move onward in our transition requires the practice of followership. Humble submission 
not just to your earthly authorities, but to the ultimate authority, to the one who has been given all authority on heaven and earth, submission to Jesus. What does this look like? See, as you read the gospels, you will find that Jesus never uttered the words uh, that you have to ask me into your heart. Jesus never uttered the words, um, hey, pray this sinner's prayer and you better get it right word for word and then you will be saved. Jesus never said respond to just this emotional altar call in this way and then you will be saved. Now, if if this is the way that you have come to know Jesus, I don't want to discourage you. Um, I I don't want you to think uh, that you are not saved. However, I do want you to understand what is really going on in those moments when you accept Jesus into your heart, when you say the sinner's prayer, when you respond to an altar call. Um, While Jesus never said those things, he did say, I would like you to pick up your cross and follow me. Follow me. This is actually what the word disciple means. The word disciple means follower. And in order to become a follower, you have to pick up your cross. What does that mean? I've used this illustration in the past, but it has stuck with me. If I asked you to take up your football and follow me, what are we going to do? We're going to go play football. If I ask you to pick up your books and come and follow me, what are we going to do? We're going to go read somewhere. We're going to go to a coffee shop or the library and we're going to read together. If I ask you to pick up your cross and follow me, what are we going to do? We're going to die. We're going to die. You see, To follow Jesus' life means to lay down yours. You you can't follow Jesus until you've picked up your cross and you've laid it down for him. The practice of followership is vital. Your eternity depends on it. The world will tell you that following is for the weak. That, that submission is frowned upon. If you follow, if you submit, that means you're weak. That's what the world would tell you, but Jesus demonstrates a much different story, does he not? See, as Jesus sat in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified, we find him praying to God the Father. And he's saying, Lord, Father, if if there is any other way to do this, if there is any other way to save mankind, would you please take this responsibility away from me? Would you please take this cup from me? But if this is the only way to save mankind, then not my will, but yours. I will submit to you, my Father in heaven. Jesus submitted to the Father, and it landed him on the cross. In submitting the Father, Jesus submitted to death, even death on a cross. And now, 
Because he has been resurrected, he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he is the name above all names. Why? Because he willingly chose to submit. He willingly chose to follow. Jesus followed, and now he is glorified for it. There is great benefit to following, to submission. And the invitation is on the floor. Have you ever taken up Jesus's invitation to pick up your cross and follow him? How on earth can you ever expect to submit to your earthly authorities if you haven't submitted yourself to the highest authority? You never really will be able to submit and follow until you have followed Christ. And there is great benefit in that. However, in Joshua and the Israelites' case, they could not go into the promised land. They could not enjoy rest. They could not enjoy and reap the benefits until they followed Joshua's lead. You will not experience rest. You will not experience fulfillment and purpose. You will not experience harmony in your life until you follow Jesus. Let's pray. And Father, we ask this very moment to search our hearts. Personally, Lord, would you look into my heart and, and show me, reveal to me what I am holding on to, what I am not willing to put at your feet. Lord, what is holding me back from following you, Lord? I ask, Father, that whatever that is, you would show it to me and that I would obey in that manner. I pray, Father, that FAC would be uh, about following and proud to, to follow and proud to submit to the leadership and the authorities that you have placed in our lives. Because then and only then, Lord, will the world take us seriously. I ask, Lord, for this offering that you would bless it. This, in a sense, is an act of submission and followership, Lord, as we give you um, just a portion of what you have so richly blessed us with. I ask, Father, that we would, in our hearts, um, have the desire to follow you in this manner and the giving of our tithes and offerings. And I ask, Lord, that you would bless it and multiply it. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. In your holy name I pray. Amen.